That's you. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, welcome everyone, uh, uh, both those of you with us live and those of you listening to our podcast. Welcome aboard uh, to another episode of Splendid and Friends. Uh, as always, some new faces in the room and hopefully some new ears listen to this uh, after the fact on our podcast. So, uh, for, for you folks, uh, my name is Paul Blake. I'm your co-host uh, tonight. Uh, with me is uh, Lisa Marie Diemer. Hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Uh, Lise will be um, uh, keeping an eye on the chat room uh, and we will encourage you to add your questions to chat as we go. Uh, we, um, sh uh, she'll kick me under the table when there's one that I uh, need to throw into the mix right away. Uh, and we'll also uh, keep some uh, back for the little 15 minute bonus for those of you who are with us live. Um, so tonight's session. Uh, it's all about designing at scale, and I'm dead pleased to welcome Catherine Hills along. Hey, Kath, how are you doing? Hey, Paul. Hey, Lisa. Really well, thanks. How are you? Good. It's been a while. We were discussing. It's been way too long, and uh, as yeah. always, we're using this as an excuse to catch up with mates. Yeah, which is wonderful. The big COVID pause, right? <laughs> right. Now, uh, I happen to know that you've got a new role, so rather than a natural role, uh, um, you, can, you can tell us where you're at right now. That's right, Paul. Uh, I've just joined Envato. Uh, I used to work at Envato many years ago, or it feels like many years ago. It was about seven years ago, um, eight years ago now. And it was um, very early on in, I think, the Envato journey. So it's um, really interesting to be rejoining again. I'm actually covering a parental leave um, contract there for 12 months and awesome. really excited. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm just off the back of covering... Uh, uh, a 12-month parental uh, leave uh, contract myself, and I think it's a nice, nice amount of time. You get uh, you get a, a, a chance to kind of get immersed, uh, and uh, 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 at the same time, and I shouldn't judge you by my own standards. There's an opportunity to get in and out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is nice when you're kind of part or 100% consultant to have that, you know, sort yeah. of. Um, yeah, ability to to be part of something, but also to um, have time. So, good. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure it will go well. Um, so, as always tonight, uh, we are broadcasting uh, from the lands of the Jajawurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, so, before we dive into the questions, uh, I would like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land on the lands of. of owners of the lands of which we all meet uh, virtually today. Uh, pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, so let's dive into um, uh, designing at scale. So to begin, I'm interested in, um, well, design maturity can, can uh, within organizations can vary tremendously. And I, um, I'm really curious to begin with what you consider to be like outside looking in on organizations, what, what do you always highlight as those kind of key indicators that a company really gets design? That's a really good question, Paul. I've been thinking about it a lot actually um, in terms of my recent um, few years where I've been touching on org design and capability design as well as enablement. Um, across teams and the way teams are organised and even the taxonomy of teams and skills. And um, certainly that's something as design leaders, we're pretty familiar with um, how do we organise our teams? How do we shape them? You mm. know, um, how do we scale them? Um, what kind of talent are we looking for? How do we enable them? There's a whole lot of questions there. And certainly um, I think, you know, the, it's interesting when we look at design maturity indexes, frameworks or models, because uh, a lot of those models are built around um, the how and, right. and the what and <laughs> yeah. like tools, um, methods, um, you know, sort of the um, understanding of design, the perception of influence and hierarchy, all of those things. And for me, um, maturity is also about accountability and self-reflection. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to see a maturity model that incorporates those factors mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the relationships we build both with the people we work with as well as the impacts we have on the people we design for yeah so i know that you know I, there's there's a fair few of those kind of design maturity frameworks now and a lot of them have real scary numbers on like they say it takes 20 years or 30 years to get an organization from like uh from a standing start to somewhere where 
design is um, is considered in a, in a strategic sense. Um, uh, is that what? What would your view be on 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 those type of timescales? We know with those timescales, I think even in personal development or psychology, that you know sometimes it takes six months to change habits or. Mm so many, you know, um, months or, of practice and you need to have the conditions around you to make that happen um, yeah. as well as the self-motivation to do that. And when you've got a collective organism, which is an organisation, um, you know, that's complex and um, I was looking at complex adaptive systems theory a few years ago right. and thinking about that and, and thinking, you know, how do we, um, how are we as complex individuals within complex um teams or right. sort of um, organisations as um, populations of people, how do we organise around maturity? Mm. Um, you know, it, it is a complex issue. And so when you look at the 20-year model or five-year even, um, and we look at sort of the way we behave in how we actually deliver design or strategise for visions and outcomes, um, organisations usually don't look past the two-year mark. Right. So, you know, it might be more realistic the design teams to be thinking about what's achievable yeah, <laughs> in two yeah. years rather than five or 20. Yep. Yep. And then on a, in a practical sense. So if, if, um, if I'm a design practitioner and I really want to go and work at an organization where uh, there is a good level of design maturity, what, what um, things would you use in terms of an evaluation? So um, what would you go research? What, what would be the key indicators you think, yeah, I could go work here and these people seem to really get it? Um, definitely that sense of accountability around those relationships. Um, I think the advocacy and influence conversation is really interesting. It's often housed in the design leadership role descriptions, for example, um, that it's part of the role, the role and the job. And that's a lot of labour. Um, so I'd be thinking about, um, you know, sort of the assessment of how well people are interacting, um, mm -hmm. how well um, accepted is design as a function, do designers feel valued, mm -hmm. um, you know, are the impacts being felt, you know, you can have all of the conditions, I think it's a, it's a huge assumption to think that just because methods and tools and certain activities are enacted in a design team, that it's always going to be successful in the way it designs and how effective the design um, output is or outcomes are. Mm. So for me, I'd be wanting to know about that and how much the design team is enabled to be working up and down the system across the organisation as well, yeah. not just relegated to like what we call the second diamond in the double diamond model, yeah. <laughs> um, actually being interacted with further up the diamond or even in um, pre sort of diamond strategy conversations outside of um, normal design capability areas and the exposure to those conversations as well. Um, I think that that is a huge indicator of acceptance of design as a really valued part of the organisation yeah. and also people on the same playing field with other professional capabilities. So it's more than, than kind of looking to see whether the company's got a chief design officer, as a for instance. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, often these people are brought in as thought leaders to convert the organisation's philosophy and openness to design. So certainly that's no bad thing. Um, it probably has happened because there's a need for it. Yep. And, you know, philosophical change around, you know, instead of maybe being technology driven, being customer driven or, you know, sort of looking at human factors of what is built or sort of organised for mm. before it's done. Um, but in my view, um, it could be all sorts of models of design in an org design um, that could be effective depending on the culture of that business. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you mentioned something interesting there around, it's at its heart, it's around where design happens within the business. So the first diamond, uh, as much as the second diamond, and also out into that more strategic thinking um, so on a practical sense uh, as designers how can we how can we engineer a seat at the table when it comes to embedding design into those kind of strategic uh, thought processes and and uh, and outcomes 
I guess um, understanding the view of design, I think acting as researchers and embedding our practices into the way we evaluate our effectiveness within the organisation is helpful. Mm -hmm. um, certainly that's something that I seek to understand rather than going in with all guns blazing, you know, to um, seek to get people to accept me as a designer or, or as a design leader and the way I think things should be done. Um, things are never um, that clear cut and in order to succeed at, as, um, at getting a seat at the table, I think you need to also consider what it is that has stopped that from happening before and, yeah. um, you know, question why it hasn't happened already mm. and really seek to receive those answers. Um, and it may be critically um, critical information that you haven't received because the feedback um, the feedback um, communication may not be very mature in the business. Mm. Um, you know, seeking that kind of feedback on yourself, on your capability, understanding how they're functioning and how they're perceived to be um, collaborating and partnering with others is really important. Uh, in your experience, are there any kind of systemic um, roadblockers in terms of elevating design up the organisation? Does it are there? Are there key reasons why it kind of comes unraveled and doesn't seem to land? Uh, I think that there's a multiple factors there, Paul. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like how long have you got for? We've only got an hour. <laughs> got yeah, it yeah. As you know, uh, it depends on the business uh, or the organisation and, and the factors around it. Uh, I think it depends on where you enter as well and, and what you advocate for, especially if you're a leader. Um, coming in um, to lead a capability within an organisation, it's a good question to ask mm. before you even enter the organisation at all. Um, I also think, um, you know, sort of in terms of, um, you know, sort of the approach to, I'm just trying to reflect on the key the key parts of that question. Can you just repeat the last part of that question? Because I've got uh, a few things. Probably not, no. Because <laughs> uh, um, uh, so it's, <laughs> yeah. It, it's around, yeah. How can we? How can we? At its heart, you know, are there uh, are there systemic reasons why you feel design uh, sometimes fail fails to get itself yeah. into more strategic parts of a business? Are there, uh, you know, is there a sense of the history repeating itself? And, so and just yeah. got my thread back. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> um, it's the end go. of the day for anyone who's dialing in from another time zone. So <laughs> <laughs> um. we got there between us. Yeah. <laughs> Lots, lots of ideas there, Paul. I've often thought um, that, you know, um, by nature, designs perceived as chaotic, difficult to communicate on mm. um, around the value. Um, you know, we have lots of different kind of roles of design or roles of different things to do with design, um, roles of design effectiveness, usability, um, understanding um, that not everyone knows what they are. And yeah. also understanding that designers are often pigeonholed as creatives. <laughs> Mm. playing like children in these creative spaces um the ones who have fun um you know maybe a bit childlike not perceived as mature um just bit by the nature of design and the way we communicate and um and I think there's something to be challenged there and and I was reflecting on um some of the things that Brené Brown and um I think she's quoted Mayor Angelou on belonging and um the idea of being your authentic self, but still being part of something. Mm -hmm. And thinking about us as designers, still being able to be our authentic selves, but still being part of something and how we interact with that collective group that we're part of. Mm. Um, I think there's something in that. Um, I've also sometimes thought that, you know, certain um, capabilities or professional areas might be considered to be more rigid and scientific, and we might be more social science. Mm. Um, which is always difficult and even in an academic world um, sort of conversations you might have um, conversations around validity and you know the fact that it's more difficult to demonstrate um, research integrity with social science than it is with um, scientific method and experimentation yeah. uh, so bringing that together in a way where those worlds become like a mixed methods mm. landscape yeah. yeah I think is a really good way to think about it yeah, I've tried to get over my um, pathological distrust of, of surveys uh, <laughs> and like also a, a more um, a meta level, stop calling them surveys because there's way more to, uh, to quantitative uh, research than running a survey. So, so 
I think certainly reflecting on my own um, experiences, at least part of it is 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 on me. I won't won't uh, assume everyone else is the same, but part of it is on me to understand that there are other facets of research and other facets of design, and there are and 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 to try and build bridges rather than to feel that that I'm doing something wildly different just because I consider myself a human-centered designer. That's it. And I mean, even in human-centered design, um, you know, you still need other ways of communication, um, methods of communication in design to communicate the value of the work that you've done in human-centered design. Mm. So to be a researcher or somebody who's not a visual designer mm. is great um, that you may, um, you know, in certain contexts need the help of a visual designer or an, or an illustrator to um, demonstrate and communicate and advocate for that information, um, to demonstrate the value of it. Uh, so it's kind of like times tending that. So it's like yes. a, as a human-centered designer, I'll, I'll, I'll need support from visual designers and, and, and a host of other people within what I would consider to be a design discipline. And then to land strategy, it's around also having rapport and collaboration with people who would see themselves as strategists or uh, people who would be much more around uh, uh, running the numbers on the bottom line or all sorts of other people. That's right, Paul. And I mean, even um, recent experiences of working with um, people in culture, um, traditional strategy functions like management consultants, mm. um, you know, digital strategists, marketing strategists, you know, um, there's always a different lens. Um, but it's aligning to those outcomes that you're seeking to define and not being um, exclusive about the work. I think, you know, uh, as human-centred designers or researchers or both, we're, we're wanting to be participatory and um, inclusive and um, facilitate those conversations. So it's awfully odd when we don't look at ourselves and how we interact with other people yeah. in the practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a kind of... Um... Yeah, we've got to come to the party a little bit as well. It's not all on other people. Hmm. That's it. Um, any burning questions from the group yet, Lise? Not yet, no. Well, come on, folks. You need to do better than that. Otherwise, I will keep asking the questions. So let's um, let's talk business transformation, Kath. Um, so often when I, when I not, not even... Uh, uh, as narrow as digital transformation, often when I it, when it's something as broad as business transformation, uh, when I drill into it, it often seems to be uh, about rolling out some new tech systems, and then everything else kind of follows along behind that. Um, is that just me being my normal cynical self, or, or <laughs> well, there's an element of truth in that? I, I guess we've got to remember that um, not everyone's altruistic in an organisation <laughs> and there's always going to be agendas and, and people who, you know, barrack for their team and, um, you know, the, the tech investment's often really huge, um, especially with, you know, major transformations. So um, putting, you know, sort of the other hat on, it might be quite costly, require a lot of definition, um, there may be biases and, it could also be a knowledge bias or sort of previous experience bias around what you've worked with before and what you bring in terms of your expertise as a leader. So there could be a lot of that going on yeah. um, with transformation projects because often those transformation project projects are led by leaders and they might be new leaders. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, but those are my observations in my experience that sometimes that becomes an agenda. But um, I think that the overarching um, observation that I've had is that um, you know organizations are maturing now and you know it, it feels like the 80s to say oh the customer comes first and think about the customer or even the 60s but it just um, you know it feels like there's a bit of realization now around um, the why but maybe not exactly the knowledge of how mm -hmm. and um, that's where the um, organizations ironically from what I was saying earlier, um, need help because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah, we, we kind of get what we need to do. We, we understand that this is a way. Um, we all are fairly experienced now and often those senior leaders do have quite a lot of years behind them. And, you know, um, hopefully sort of within, you know, most of these organisations they've hired for um, what they need. Um, so those conversations are sort of um, becoming more tech-informed rather than, tech-led, I feel. Right. 
Right. Um, got a question coming in. Mm. Yeah, and I think Fifi would like to maybe ask. She can ask it herself. Yeah, sure. It's more of conversational. Yeah, far if, if she's far if away, she's happy, Fifi. Happy well, welcome. Yeah, in. yeah. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Hi. Um, so yeah, my questions probably relates to the previous conversation around um, team. Um, and not just human-centered design team. So my question is actually, what if within that human-centered design team, you have um, a whole heap of different disciplines and then everyone is trying to do their craft. Um, and then there's so much things that overlap, obviously, because it's a very thin lines. So it's all just kind of like, how do we do this efficiently without stepping on each other's toes so you don't do a double up, for example, or yeah. so that even people from the business side actually understand who to talk to on who to go to and all that. Um, so it's more kind of like how do, um, yeah, how would you consolidate all those crafts so then it's clear to people outside the human-centered design team. And, mm. you know, at that um, to a very fast-paced product environment um, where you need to scale very, very quickly. Um, and yeah, and nobody has enough time to consolidate, regroup or realign because we need to push this, we need to deliver this um, quickly and then throw that in the mix, the delivery team that's also um, super, super complex where you have front end dev um, and dev end and API and all that, um, where they're wanting to lead from a tech point of view, which you've kind of touched on recently, um, just now. Um, so yeah, how, how do you um, avoid confusion um, uh, between design team yep. um, first, and then how, how do you kind of channel that out to the rest? Yeah. That's a fantastic question. Great question. So, Sorry, it took forever to explain. I, so I'm just like verbal vomit. I'm just I'm just trying to paraphrase that, and then I'm going to delicately handball it to Kat to do all the hard work. Uh, so <laughs> there's. There's something there around defining roles and responsibilities within the immediate design team. Uh, there's something there around how the design team uh, interface with delivery teams and also the wider business. And there's also then how on earth do you do that when you've got to deliver, constantly deliver stuff? Okay, so... Over, over to you, Kath. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think, you know, it, it's a complex environment um, when you're in um, sort of a fast-paced, um, potentially chaotic um, and high-speed delivery context. Uh, you know, um, usually when you um, place people in teams, it's because they have the right skills to support that team's outcomes that they're driving towards. Uh, not every product delivery team or squad has the same requirements or outcomes. So, it's really around understanding what is the nature of the initiatives that we're delivering and calibrating the team towards those initiatives and um, the needs from the design craft perspective. So it could be that this thing is um, very discovery driven. Um, we need someone who's research heavy, who has great facilitation skills, who really understands how to synthesize and has good, um, good uh, cross-functional collaboration knowledge and um, is confident and experienced. Um, it could be that, um, you know, the um, requirement is simply that um, there might be, you know, um, a pair in there, a UX and UI. Um, so there's, there's multiple calibrations of what that could look like. And I guess, um, you know, I'm not aware of Fifi's context in terms of how many people she has and, you know, in terms of um, the um, capacity her team has to allocate to different kinds of needs within um, her delivery teams. But certainly um, you need to have a, well, what I'm sort of thinking about um, in recent weeks, um, given my new role is what are the plans for delivery? What are the, what are the quarter ahead or even further ahead plans? Um, and looking at that from a capacity planning perspective um, to understand the skills and the shapes that are needed in the teams. Um, you know, how senior um, should the people be? And um, certainly there is, um, scope for upskilling people and there should always be scope for growth and learning um, I feel in a really great team 
um, regardless of whether you're a design or something else, there should always be that scope for people to develop themselves. But you also need to look at the criticality of the delivery, um, how long it's going to take to get things out the door, how experienced that person needs to be um, both in the domain, so for example, the tech domain that they're working in or the subject matter area or industry area that they need to have knowledge on, especially if they go in there for the first time with no pre-knowledge or little context, um, which I could imagine would be some of the things that you're dealing with at the moment. Um, so definitely, um, you know, that can be hard to calibrate and organise against, especially if those people are in demand. Uh, so there's a lot of things to think about and that's where knowledge sharing is super important and transfer of knowledge, shared understanding with teams, awareness of what's happening, making sure that there isn't a point of failure. If people do leave, for example, you might have attrition, um, you know, you might lose somebody who's critical. Um, you might also have demand for that individual across many things. Um, you may want to give someone a chance to really um, grow. Uh, so there's all of those factors. And I think as a person who's managing the operations of a design team and allocating people, um, those factors are critical in keeping people engaged and also making sure that um, the business feels satisfied with what the design capability is supporting. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that. Just, I hope that helps, Fifi. Let me know if it, you need more information. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll give someone else a chance <laughs> to <laughs> ask questions. I do have a whole heap of questions, but <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I'll hold that lot. And we got another, we got another uh, question uh, coming in, Kath. So uh, um, um, let's, uh, uh, let's go with that one. And then after that, I want to talk Agile. Cool. Okay, I think that's me. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, hi, hi. Hi, Hamish. <laughs> hi, Catherine. Um, so, uh, yeah, I work for government, um, and there's a continuous and cyclical conversation about how to move the needle um, and become more mature. And I just wanted to um, understand whether you've come across, rather than um, organisational structures being the result of pushing for a more design-led organisation, whether if you had the opportunity like enforcing a structure actually leads back to uh, a design culture, like whether that's a tool in the toolkit that you might be able to use if you have the opportunity. Does that that's make really, sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, I guess enforcing a structure can be possible if you have great support from your, your peers and your, your, your leaders. So I think, um, you know, that there's always negotiation and capacity planning and forecasting for staff and, also getting that funding approved um, to get that right shape. Um, I guess um, you can look at your internal capability um, as well and, and look at how they desire to be developed um, and what their desired working practices are um, and look at um, where you can have champions and supporters and allies within the business to make that happen. Mm. So it could be, um, you know, we're advocating for better... Um, you know, behaviours in sprint because the design team maybe um, want to get ahead a bit more. Mm. Um, they want to have time for more exploratory work. We might, you know, look at um, different ways of working um, in order to enable that. Um, it's really around um, looking at the vision for the team as well mm. um, and also the vision from the organisational perspective of what design should bring. Um, you know, so there is, I always, I, I know that sounds like a fence-sitting comment, um, oh, no, that's not what I was, that wasn't my, what my facial expression was. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't at all. No, um, I guess, um, you know, I, that is interdependent. So mm. without having that understanding, um, reinventing the wheel or creating factional behaviour, I think, within an organisation or a working group can always be disruptive. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the, I won't take up too much more of everyone's time, but the, the, the sort of use case is that um, in government or in any large organisation, you have people coming in and there's the roles that is what possibly most of us think the roles mean. And then there's what the roles actually mean. Um, and so you have these teams which are expecting to behave and work in a certain way. And then the other hierarchies and uh, scaffolding in the org systems don't actually support that. So 
you know, stakeholders don't come and check in in an agile fashion or they don't understand that they're servant leaders and it's sort of hierarchical down pushing and that prevents the sort of um, respect for we design, we prove, we show the benefits. You don't have, it's not a, a, like a Gantt chart in, in a lot of instances or, or whatever, like the value of research. So somehow doing org as a prototype, like prototyping, an org structure up to a certain point that would allow it to function and then saying, see, look, um, that's sort of what my thinking was because it's often yeah. hard to do it the other way around. It is, it is possible to test and learn that way um, with the right alignment, I think, with your co-leadership co or peers in your delivery team. So, you know, you could do it at, at a delivery team level, you know, mm. let's, let's try this way of working or let's adjust and test and learn and see how everyone feels. Um, you know, you can't say that's not a reasonable thing to present to a team, like, you know, especially if people are open enough to talk about it. Mm. Um, you know, it depends on that openness, actually. And, you know, if your colleagues are open to that, those conversations and want to hear more about um, what some great new people or existing people want to do with design in the organisation, then you've got a head start. Mm. But certainly when you're looking at that advocacy piece and pushing against maybe... Um, command and control versus servant leadership. Yeah. You know, there's a friction there and the expectations are different around the behaviours of the of the people who are working within those systems. Yeah. And that that can be challenging, definitely. Um, Solution-wise, I would say, um, you know, it would be around presenting an outcome. You know, there, mm. there is a possibility of just running ahead and begging for forgiveness later. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, that can be risky. Um, but it can also have high rewards. Yeah, it's a gamble. Well, it's not. It shouldn't be a gamble. If we're accountable, we should be able to say, "Well, we will deliver on the outcomes in a tangible, measurable way." Yes. Um, yeah. So just, but I think the gamble is just hold off for X amount of time so that we can prove it. Because um, not often at the at the doing level, the resistance, as you say, is higher up. Yeah, right, and it, that's okay. No problem. Now, sorry, I didn't mean to, to cut you off. I just don't want to. Oh, that's all right. You're fine. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, great questions, Hamish. Thank you. Thank you for those. And great answers, Catherine. Um, now, I'm going to... Um, uh, it's not often uh, that uh, I'm in the presence of someone who knows both uh, human-centred design and, and agile in uh, to the level that, that you do, Kath. So uh, uh, I want to... I want to um, dive into that a little bit, if I may. Um, so um, I think it's fair to say that over the years, there's been a little bit of friction between design teams and, uh, and agile development teams in terms of um, um, the classic one that I always used to hear was, oh, we, you know, the, the researchers just hold things up, right? We just want to get on and build and we can't build because they're busy researching, um, among other things. Um, is there a is there a good combination of of human centered design and agile, and 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 what are the practical ways that you can bring the best of both together to get a great result? That's again a really amazing question. I, I definitely um, understand and notice the changes in industry, especially in technology businesses, around the trends towards product design capabilities and separating research into separate capabilities that support the delivery teams and the product teams. Um, I've seen other businesses um, incorporate research into the product role, um, leading research. And I've seen um, other businesses doing um, the hybrids, you know, um, traditional UX and um, human-centered design and delivery, for example, with agile teams. Um, none are perfect. And um, I guess, um, it is a thorny topic because, um, you know, uh, certain designers come from a certain perspective and lens on what they should be doing. And, and it's going back, I think, a bit to what Hamish was talking about with expectations on how they should behave and um, what they can do in an agile team. Um, and I think um, when we sort of, as designers, um, you know, go, oh, I hate agile, it might just be because people haven't really sussed out yet how to bring it all together. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's that's part of that, that journey um, because, you know, now we're living in a world where, you know, agile um, ways of working 
are deeply embedded in um, the delivery of technology product. Um, and they're also getting um, embedded in other areas of businesses as well. So um, how do we um, interact with that and how do we do it effectively is a good question. Um, I guess, um, you know, there's, there's an element of best practice methodology that needs to be considered and there needs to be rigour or certain levels of um, attention to the quality of the work that you're delivering no matter what the constraints are around you. And you have to think about, well, what can I control versus what I can't, just like in anything in life. <laughs> um, and I think that there's a, a sort of a certain bias and um, perception from, say, for example, the world of Scrum or um, Agile um, advocates or technology agilists that, you know, maybe um, design activities housed in a design team that don't include the rest of the delivery team our design up front and there's a tension there because everyone's trying to be agile and collaborate so I think that's why there is this kind of current separation of research and design even though the designers might be involved in research quite deeply the perception might be that the researchers are doing the research and the designers are doing the design in sprint yeah and um, you know I, I find that interesting because as a hybrid <laughs> um, a designer and a researcher I like to be involved in both and I think that they're critical factors to what we do and how effective the outcomes are. Um, and also, um, you know, I guess HCD is by its nature strategic um, and it can be sort of, you know, the, the you know, um, HCD practice can be embedded into small incremental cycles which suit delivery, um, especially if um, designers have enough time to do that build, test, learn cycle um, that we talk about with lean um, or build, measure, learn. Um, but the um, possibility to think more strategically and look above the horizon is always something designers desire. And it seems like an awful mistake not to have that connection. Um, so that's why um, there's other factors around the um, delivery of human-centred design and agile um, delivery streams um, you know, such as um, having a purpose and vision created and having principles to align to, I think are really important um, to make that feel okay. Um, and having that scaffolding behind you so you know that you still have that governance over what you're delivering and, and what you're going for. Um, that can make you feel a bit more secure, even if you're working in incremental cycles, which often these um you know sprints you know sprint sprint um cadences force you into and i guess um recently i was discussing with um a designer who was one of my direct reports um the problem of best practice and the expectation of being ahead and the tension for him around that and um all i could say to him was well that's something that you have to navigate and negotiate because um when you go in with your expectations, so do it, so does everyone else. And it goes back to that, you know, how to play together <laughs> situation. So um, working out how to partner and collaborate well. I mean, my hypothesis is that agile in its broad in the broader sense has embedded itself in a good way in most major organizations. So therefore is involved at scale so therefore um if we can hitch the human-centered design wagon to that uh to that agile uh, uh situation then then by definition we should also be able to elevate uh, uh des design through the organization as well um is that do you, do you feel that's a reasonable or unreasonable hypothesis to to elevate agile yeah to, to kind of use agile by to a degree by stealth so in other words if we can if we can make sure if if agile is working at scale in organizations and we want design to work at scale inside organizations if we can if we can uh, um, land on a sweet spot where where agile and human-centered design can work well together by definition we will therefore elevate um, elevate design in the organization as well or is, is that naive 
I don't think that's naive at all, Paul. I, I think it's actually really important because um, by denying agile ways of working, we're denying the current state of how most technology delivery teams are working in the world today. And also, I've often talked about the um, Agile Manifesto. <laughs> um, but the thing I find surprising is that people talk about Agile as a method and it's a mindset. Mm. Um, and it really is about the human factors of teams and being closer to the people that you're delivering to. Mm. And I think that's hugely complementary to human-centred design. <laughs> So, so it could be an issue with our colleagues as well, but they don't really think about that, you know, and um, who's going to do it, you know, uh, someone has to do it and someone has to be speaking to people and understanding and listening and working with those people to define what we're delivering, you know, um, or understand those insights and, you know, bring that to the team. Um, so all of those things are super important. And, and so I think it is a conversation around, well, what is agility? Yeah. You know, um, agility is a different definition and, and they get, you know, synced up with all of those terms that we know, like safe and scrum. Yes. And yeah, and, and I think that that's a mistake. It's like saying human-centered design is, is one methodology or... Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to. Uh, I was. In, I, I was interested in in your view on whether that there was a particular flavour of agile that 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 was a better fit for for human centred design. So um, yeah, Scrum and and scaled agile sort of safe. Uh, a lot of organisations that I've uh, worked with recently have 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 a, a desire to to get into the whole sort of scaled agile uh, framework. Um, and then as a flip side of that, I was reading a post by um, Jeff uh, Got Health recently, uh, author of Lean UX, saying that he doesn't think scaled agile framework is agile and he's got no idea how it would work with his Lean UX principles. So it's like there's a real if, – if folks like Jeff are finding a disconnect, uh, then, <laughs> uh, then it's obviously still a tricky one to navigate through. Um, uh, very interested in your views on on those particular agile flavors and uh, and also on the sort of scaled agile not not fitting with lean ux well i guess lean um lean by its nature is um very inductive and um you know uh the ability to continuously deliver or continuously improve um is also anchored in the fact that you would have something that you're continuously working on with no pivots um, that are irrelevant to what you're working on today. Um, so I guess, um, you know, you might learn that what you've built over time um, and continuously delivered on is absolutely invaluable, um, doesn't have any value at all. Rather than being invaluable, it could be the opposite. Mm -hmm. And um, all of a sudden, you know, if it is invaluable to customers or the business or both um, you continue to deliver and you know BAU cycles tend to support continuous delivery um, whereas experimental cycles are different and um, I was thinking about um, sort of as you were talking Paul the uh, you know opinion that Jeff has and obviously he's written a book about lean UX and um, there's also enterprise um, lean enterprise as well that I think was written by Barry O'Reilly and Sidon. Um, yeah. And I, I believe that, um, you know, sort of it is possible to apply these approaches with alignment to the outcomes that are being delivered. Um, you know, I've recently come out of a safe, a scaled agile project where I thought, oh, you know, this is going to be drab. <laughs> you know, we have an endpoint. We know where we have to get to. We just have to get there. Yeah. And then after that, it could be continuous delivery. It could be lean. Um, and that was kind of like agile nirvana, you know. But yeah. then you're kind of taking on those agile ceremonies and putting on the outfits and pretending to be agile um, and enacting agile behaviours in the ceremony scrum mm. kind of um, formats, um, which is kind of um, for anyone who really wants to be agile is letting them down um, in their own minds because they, they're not living the dream. Mm. Um, so I can see why there's tensions around those perceptions and um, the value of them. Sometimes you really do need to have a finite delivery program that's supported by very structured outcomes. 
Yeah. And that can feel like gated waterfall and it doesn't feel like modern delivery at all. Um, but, you know, sometimes that's, you know, important, you know, with, um, you know, if you're doing a complete restructure of a technology stack, like um, it could be that um, like CBA did years ago, um, they just took all the plumbing out, all the electricity and built all the new house with everything or the, the new building with everything in it. Um, it could have been a microservices um, execution and, and that set them up to win. Mm. You know, they were able to deliver quickly after that. But that pain that they had to go through to make those decisions to recalibrate and build all of the architecture, that would have had a finite endpoint. Yeah. Um, and that may have involved design to get to that point. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I think that I think that you know it is easier to complain um, about the situation that you're in as a designer and have ideals and best practices in mind. But I think where you acquire mastery or better skills is actually applying um, your rigor and understanding of great outcomes to those conditions. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like um, there's no one size fits all. I guess it's like, as you say, the the the, the nature of the project can dictate a particular approach. Um, and, That's right. And and being <laughs> being careful with your craft, but not dogmatic about exactly how you need to apply it is possibly something in there as well. So yeah, we might have our preferred ways of working. And that's okay. Um, and that's how you sort of navigate your career by working out how you prefer to work. But I think that as designers, we need to be pragmatic and um, we need to understand that we need to apply ourselves to constraints. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, any questions on the backlog? Yep. No, right. Oh, I'm going to I'm going to continue to hog it then yeah. <laughs> uh, until someone uh, um, uh, comes up with something to make me stop. So um, the next thing I really wanted to talk about was design ops. Um, again, in terms of in, in terms of embedding rigor within an organization and 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 being able to to scale design. So it's a repeatable process. Seems reasonable that you need to have a kind of design ops approach. That said, it's kind of come out of nowhere and got like really uh, popular and sort of flavor in the month uh, uh, recently. And I think the whole term design ops means a whole set of different things to different people. So I think to begin with, I'd be really interested in what what your what your view of what design ops is uh, and what it looks like. Well. Paul, I think that design ops is the invisible work that design teams have always done. <laughs> <laughs> Just someone finally given it a title and a job role. <laughs> so it's like being, you know, sort of the unpaid worker at home doing the housework but not getting paid for it or not getting any super. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that's the immediate response there because I was thinking about um, that question and, and, and was thinking to myself, as you said it, that actually, uh, you know, design ops has always existed. And as long as our professions existed, we've had to do things to support ourselves, especially as we navigate scale and repeatable work, especially mm -hmm. um, because we do have repeatable work and we do have, um, you know, the need for repositories of information that support us to do our work better. Um, not all of our work is bespoke, and um, especially in um, in areas where you might have a system, um, and it could be a complex organisation, like a um, government or um, government uh, organisation, or it could be, uh, you know, a bank. Uh, you know, there anywhere where there is a big system or multiple systems that are interacting with each other, it makes sense to have um, the support to do your work easily and also to um, if you look at um, knowledge management and the way we um, manage our resources in, in design it makes absolutely no sense to have to reinvent the wheel every time you start something new um, or even um, start a new person on something that exists so I would say that um, the design ops uh, the design ops capability is um, a capability that should enable teams to 
be more efficient and to enable the teams to function well um, and also to the, enable the teams to be enabled to do their best work. Um, we often um, think about ops as um, the, uh, the world of frameworks and methods and tools and software and hardware. <laughs> um, it can also sort of traverse into um, the world of talent and engagement within the organisation. It could be the scaffolding around the design leadership team to support um, activities that the design do to get design team do together. Yep. And um, maybe the way that design team um, enacts events or engagements with the rest of the organisation, it could be around training and development and enabling activities to happen for larger cohorts of people um, or supporting individuals. So I think that, um, you know, all of those things, um, maybe in, you know, the studio system, mm -hmm. there would have been an office manager or, a, you know, a studio assistant or somebody helping and um, it's become in larger organisations the ops function. Yeah. 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 So there's something in there around um, people and culture and talent management and uh, and all of that good stuff. There's something there around um, having the right process. There's something there around having the right toolkit, and there's something there around having um the knowledge management to make sure we continue to remember what what we've just discovered rather than going back and doing it all over again so it it feels quite um that feels like a a, a very broad set of of activities so is is it a specialist role or is it something that that several people contribute to do you think i think that it, often in smaller teams the team have to build that into their own capacity to make that happen um, in the bigger teams with more investment um, you know there there's a there's an ops function um, that people I used to work with at ANZ run now and um, that's been built into the way of working as designers or the capability offering um, and the support to that um, design capability that's just one example um, you know, I think, um, you know, it's a necessary thing to have support to uh, leaders in design, um, especially as leaders become executive, interactive with executive teams, um, you know, running things such as, you know, um, forecasting, um, looking at the operationalization of large volumes of hiring, you know, all of those things and also onboarding, um, you know, what, what is the employee experience like for designers when they enter the organisation? Um, how are they, how is the capability supported? Um, and also how, how are they offboarded? You know, um, all of those things are huge. And um, especially in a market now that's affected by the pandemic where resources and talent are so valuable, uh, it, it becomes even more important to have people who have their eyes and ears to the ground beyond just the leaders I feel yeah yeah so it's there's yeah certainly a diverse set of activities I'm very interested in you in your view there it's like stuff that's it's stuff that's always happened as long as you've for as far back as you've had a design team you've had people doing doing ops it's just that possibly everyone's been doing a little bit uh or it's fallen through the cracks and no one's yes. done it or and now it seems to be more codified yeah, and you can see a lot of systems that are helping designers like Figma. Um, mm. You know, I wouldn't say the tools answer the problems, but um, some of the software that supports the design teams now incorporate some of those aspects of ops, um, like repositories, how mm. to convert into a design system, how to present one. Um, there's little things happening like that that I think are actually sort of um, affecting productivity and helping designers um, the only problem is that um, it's really easy to become, you know, fully dependent um, on those services. And um, there is a tension. I, I, I also feel that, um, you know, there is this element of, you know, not always having to reinvent the status quo mm. and um, open sourcing things um, in order to utilise the open source materials, modify them if you need to, um, understand the value of those open source materials um, having your team input into, you know, your own sort of, I suppose, flavour of what they should be for your team or your organisation, um, you know, and and scaling those 
um, is also, you know, maybe a, a quick way of um, moving forward. And there's lots of communities that have built stuff like the research ops community. Um, yeah. So lots of really great valuable material out there for people to, to consume. Now, as someone, as someone who uh, um, used to do wireframes in Visio and then in Lord knows what was next, uh, but over the years I've done Visio, Balsamic, Axior, um, uh, XD, blah, blah, blah. I totally, uh, I'm totally on board uh, with the notion of not getting locked into one particular uh, tool because times change. So uh, acknowledging that, uh, I am interested if you do, that said, if you do have any kind of go-to um, tools within that design ops uh, uh, area that uh, you, you mentioned, you know, there's some good open source stuff, but as a, and, and Figma is, is very popular. Do you, do you have any, do you have any sort of go-to tools um, that, that, that you'd go, yeah, if I was, if I wanted to get a, a design team really humming, I would definitely use X. Uh, okay. Sorry. I'm tools agnostic too. I don't like preferring services or products. I think um, clearly there's, there's jobs to be done and there are the right tools to select mm -hmm. to get that job done. So what is adopted and what, what is allowable within your ecosystem, within your business is, mm -hmm. is a good question. So um, instead of hanging um, sort of, you know, dependent, being dependent on a single tool, um, looking at what you already have and what's adopted and what can be scaled and used again and again. Um, so it could be that you're in a Microsoft ecosystem, you could be on a you know, Google ecosystem, you know, there could be um, multiple tools that you have. Um, if you don't have anything that will support the activities that you want to run to get the ops humming, um, then it would be a matter of, you know, raising funding requests or approvals for licences for that purpose. Yeah. Um, sometimes those, those tools choices can be controversial in teams. Um, there can be politics around the, the tools. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I've just come from an organisation that turned off Slack, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, that didn't go down too well with the design community. Let's, <laughs> let's just say, yeah. Did they <laughs> did they have a reason for doing that? Uh, to your exact in the, it, example of your point, um, they uh, were Microsoft based, so had Teams. Um, I had access to a whole bunch of uh, and Yammer and a bunch of other communication tools that, that with all due respect, uh, did to the design team did kind of do the same function. So uh, uh, if you've got access to a Microsoft suite, it's kind of um, it doesn't really make sense to then augment that with a bunch of other uh, tools and, an and another bunch of licensing costs. So um, I could see it from both sides. Definitely. Uh, look, I think I've seen teams get self-defeatist around the tools changes and dependency on tool, tools. I think the only thing that's um, a bit sad is if an organisation decides to migrate um, people from one set of tools to another, the organisation must think about that knowledge management because um, that transition can be incredibly painful, <laughs> um, especially for design teams that have a lot of um, assets and artefacts associated with their work. Um, so absolutely, absolutely, I would say that the design leadership or the people involved in that transition need to be incorporating the views of the design capability to support what the designers need. And um, I guess there's also the other factors of um, are you working in-house or are you working with a client? Mm. Um, you know, how do you assimilate to that client environment or do you introduce and influence new tools? Um, you know, will those tools that the client, um, say, for example, if you are a consultancy group or agency or a single, a single contributor in a consultancy role, will that client be able to support you with the right tool set? Will your tools actually be accepted in their ecosystem? Yeah. Um, all of those questions. And then if you are within, <laughs> yeah, exactly, fire will fail. <laughs> I think Bridget McNeil said that, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think that really what is interesting with internal teams is that sort of um, what I've done is um, look at that kind of democratic view um, across the team and 
um, making sure you incorporate everyone's views, um, get feedback, um, desired skill set uplift, um, find out if any of those tools will actually help with that capability building mm -hmm. and um, reflect on that before the tools are adopted. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, for those of us, for those of you with us live, we've got a couple of great questions coming up, uh, but I, uh, we're coming to the end of the kind of recorded segment. So um, that's a lovely way to round off uh, our, our recording. Um, um, I think through everything you said this evening, Kath, there's been uh, some of those watchwords have been uh, like collaboration uh, and pragmatism. Uh, it doesn't really matter where we've gone in terms of looking at that designing at scale. Uh, we've, we've come back to we need to be pragmatic and we, we need to be collaborative and we need to kind of bring everyone bring everyone together, which I think is a great way to round off the, the, the recording. So for the benefit of uh, the people that are listening to this now, if they want to hear more about you and, the, and, and your work and your views on, on design, uh, I'm assuming Twitter, you're, you're pretty active on Twitter. That's probably the best, best place to, to, to uh, um, continue to connect with you. Would that be right? That's right, Paul. Um, at Daughter of Bev <laughs> is, my, is my Twitter uh, anchor. And, um, yeah, like I'd love to hear from anyone who has any questions. Or, um, but certainly it's just been a pleasure to talk with you okay. about these topics, Paul. I'll, I'll keep and you... Lisa. I'll hit the, hit the pause button there because we've got a couple of great questions coming in from the live crew, but I'll say goodbye to our, to our podcast audience. Uh, hope that you have uh, enjoyed uh, listening uh, to this. If you want to come and join us live in future, uh, you can find us at um, by, by searching for Splendid and Friends on meetup.com or following Splendid Studio on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, thanks very much for listening. And we're about to ask all the really juicy questions now that you're going to miss out on. So please come and join us live next time. Thanks for listening.